Well, welcome to everybody, and especially also to all of you online. And let me just add my thanks, as Daniel said, just for the incredible uh, warm outpouring of support uh, from myself and my family as we've battled these last few weeks. It's really, really meant a lot to us. And one announcement also that um, we left off there is Truth Seekers also starts this Monday night um, online, so please feel free to join us there if you would, um, if you would like. Well, if I had to summarize what I hope happens this morning, it'd be two lines in that second song we sang. One is, open our eyes to the things unseen, particularly the power of God's love. And secondly, teach us to love as you have loved me. And um, if we can get those two things out of this message this morning, then, then I'll feel like it was a, a real success. So um, I hope you're ready, uh, because we are going to go through an entire book of the Bible in one sermon. But don't worry, it is only 13 verses long. Um, and it is the book of 2 John uh, at the very end of your Bible. So if you want to turn there now, that would be great. And the title of this message is Just Love, which hopefully you will see why it is called that uh, by the time we're finished, because we're going to keep coming back to that theme of just love. So this book was written um, at the end of the first century, uh, most likely when John was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And by this time of his life, he had been a follower of Jesus Christ for more than 50 years. So there's a lot we can learn from him. And the main themes of this book are truth, love, and obedience, which actually make a really good focus for the start of the new year, if you think about it. Now, John was known, as I think some of you have heard, as the apostle of love. And I think that if he were here today, we might find him to sort of be like um, Pastor Tommy from CCSB, that... Uh, we were blessed to have here a few weeks ago. Pastor Tommy gave a very profound message to us on love. If you hadn't heard it, listened to it, even if you listened to it, go back and listen to it again, because it's really all about the true meaning of Christ-like love. And when you're around him, he just exudes that love and joy. In fact, love is such a big part, I'll tell you a little thing, about uh, Pastor Tommy's ministry focus, that, that if you've ever been to his church in Santa Barbara, the one that sent Daniel down here, you can't help but notice that back on the stage behind him is this giant neon sign that says, love, love, love. And I think that if the Apostle John were here today, he'd probably have one of those signs too uh, in his church at Ephesus. You see, John was so keenly aware of the love of Jesus and the effect that it had on his life that he often even referred to himself in his writings as the one whom Jesus loved. And yet... Despite this tremendous emphasis on love, these three little letters of John at the back of our Bibles refer, refer, refer more to truth and obedience than almost any other books in the Bible. But that shouldn't surprise us that love, truth, and obedience go together, because if you knew Jesus really well, as John did, you will really love him. And if you really love him, you want to obey him. And as Jesus promised, when we obey him, his yoke is actually easy, and his burden is light. So I want us to think for a moment about this tie-in between truth and love and obedience before we start going through the book, because those are the main themes of the book, um, and we're going to see them in these 13 little verses, but I want us to think about them for a second so we can really get the most out of this. You see, truth is absolutely important for us as Christians, because we can't be that which we don't know. In other words, without right knowledge, we have absolutely no hope of right behavior. But right knowledge alone is no guarantee of right behavior. 
Jesus is the truth and God's word is truth, but truth standing alone will not necessarily do much for us other than make us maybe smart and possibly prideful. The enemy knows God's truth better than we ever will, and yet he is full of pride and he won't obey any of it. But when God's truth is approached as a means of growing in our relationship with Jesus, as a means of transforming us to be more like him, then it becomes a very powerful thing in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And here is what happens. Learning and knowing the truth about Jesus should inform our love of him and make us love him all the more. And then as we love him more, we will then want to obey him more and we will find ourselves living lives of greater obedience. In other words, truth should make us more loving and then love should make us more obedient. And if our study of God's truth is not making us more loving, then something is wrong. When Paul begins uh, the letter of 1 Timothy, which, we're, by the way, we're studying in the men's group, which is full of God's truth and full of a call to grow in our Christian character, he starts it off in 1 Timothy 1.5 with this statement. He says, the aim of our charge, meaning all that he's doing, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then he proceeds to teach God's truth. So, so that should be the point or the goal of, of all of our study of God's truth, is to have more love for Jesus, and then that in turn would then cause us to grow in our faith as we love others more, love him more, and obey him more. So with that mindset, let's go through the nuggets of truth that God has for us in this book, and let's start with the first three verses, which I'll read now. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in, the tru in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Notice how often he mentions that word truth in there. Now, this is obviously a, at one level a greeting and an introduction, as, as we see in a lot of the epistles, but there's far more in here than just a hi, hello, how are you? And there's really kind of a danger in reading too quickly through these greetings that we find in the letters in the New Testament because we can miss out on some really great stuff. And, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that every bit of God's Word is inspired and every bit of God's Word is profitable for us. So we want to dig in and focus on some key things in this greeting this morning. And as we do that, we're going to see there's a lot of really meaty truth in here in these first three verses that, that hopefully will have a very transformative effect on us as we ponder them. First, look at how John introduces himself there. He introduces himself as an elder, which is what he was in the early church. And that, in essence, means he is introducing himself as a Christian and immediately identifying with the body of Christ. So let me ask us ourselves, do we think of ourselves that way when we introduce ourselves to others? When someone asks us, you know, who are you? Tell me, about, tell me a little bit about yourself. Is, is the first thing we think of, first thing that comes to mind that we're a Christian? Or is that way down in the list? Maybe after things like husband or wife or father or mother or our occupation or how old we are, where we live. You see, John thought of himself first as a Christian and as a changed person. Because remember, when he first met Jesus, 
He was a son of thunder, but Jesus had changed him, and now he is an elder in Jesus' church. So belonging to Jesus, identifying himself with Jesus, and being a follower of Jesus was the most significant thing in John's life. Can you imagine how different our lives would be if that's how we saw ourselves first and foremost? I mean, what if you woke up every morning this new year, and the first thing you thought of was, wow, I'm a Christian. Thank God I'm a Christian. Wouldn't we have more joy in our day, more sense of being loved by God, more gratitude, more sense of purpose, more reason to care about how we treated others and how we acted and reacted to whatever's going on around us? I think that would be a really cool New Year's resolution for us, to just resolve to wake up every morning and remember that we belong to Jesus. Now, look at how John refers next to who he is writing to. It is, as it says there, to the elect lady and her children. So what does that mean? Well, there's two schools of thought. One is that John is writing actually to a particular woman and to her children. But the other is that he is writing to a church and to its congregation. And that latter view seems to be the most appropriate because, first of all, it would have been a little odd, particularly in that culture, for John as a male church leader to be writing this letter directly and only to a woman. But also, throughout 1 John, John used similar words of a familial nature. You remember he used words like little children and uh, young men and fathers to refer to the church in the book of 1 John. And he actually ends this book, 2 John, if you look down at verse 13, by saying that to this lady, the children of your elect sister greet you. So it sounds a lot like he is writing from one church to another church. But rather than get caught up in that whole issue of who he is writing to, Really, the most important thing to notice there is how he describes them, whoever they are. And note that he refers to them as being elect. Now, we're not going to get into the depths of the doctrine of election this morning, because we'd never get out of here. And although it is a very important doctrine, it would take up far more time than we have. And frankly, at the end of the day, we wouldn't understand it anyways. For it it truly is a mystery uh, how we can, on the one hand, know that we did make a decision to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And yet, on the other hand, the Bible tells us in several places that he actually chose us and that it took place even before the foundation of time. But the important thing here in 2 John is that John is reminding the people of this church and us as we're reading it that they have been chosen by God because that is something that is true of every believer in this room this morning and everyone who's listening online. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of time. And so all of us need to know that we are elect or chosen by God, even if we don't fully understand it, because knowing that truth does a number of things for us. Think about that. First, it gives us the assurance of our salvation. Because if our salvation was instead dependent on us somehow making the right decision to accept Jesus... We could always change our mind and lose our salvation. But if our salvation is dependent upon God choosing us, then God, who is immutable and unchanging, is not going to change his mind because it would go against his very character to do so. And also, if you read John 17, you'll see in there that we are actually a love gift from the Father to the Son. And guess what? The Father is never going to take back a gift that he gave to his Son And the son's never going to reject the gift and go stand in the return line and give us back. 
So our salvation is not dependent on us. Rather, it is dependent upon God and his unchanging nature, all of which means that our salvation is eternally secure. But also, knowing that we've been chosen by God should make us more grateful for our salvation. And then out of that gratitude, we are more likely to want to obey him. So rather than argue about this truth and get all twisted up about it, as many Christians do, we just need to celebrate it. I mean, imagine this. If you were that scrawny kid on the playground in junior high school, and, and all of a sudden, one of the big, strong guys who was always the captain of every kickball team, they're, they're choosing people for the kickball team, and he picks you, you'd be overjoyed. You wouldn't wonder, why did he do it? Why, why me? I don't, you know, you'd just be thrilled that he picked you. And that's kind of how we should react when we think about that, that God chose us. So next, in these introductory words of John, we see something that is true of all those who have been chosen by God, and that is, as it says there, that they love each other in the truth. You see, if you truly are on God's team, you're going to love others on that same team with you. Or as John said in 1 John, you can't say you love God if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ. To love others in the truth, as John says there, implies a couple of things. For one, your love for others is not going to be hypocritical. It's not going to be just a proclamation with no acts of love behind it. Rather, it's a love that loves in word and deed. And again, it's been such a blessing to see that with the outpouring of support from this church, just as a number of us have been been battling with COVID the last few weeks. But Jesus also is the truth. So you're also going to love others because they are in Christ, and you have a unity with them because the same Jesus is in you that is in them, and he lives in both of you. And that kind of gets us through verse 2 of the introduction. So let's look at verse 3. And there are some real gems there in verse 3, the first three words, actually. Grace, mercy, and peace. Don't read over those. Let's take them in order and think about them for a second. Ephesians 2.8 says that we are saved by grace. So we'd better understand exactly what that is. And as I hope most of you know, grace is, in its simplest way, explained as this. It's undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor from God. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to keep it. And most significantly, grace is not a reward for good behavior. So it doesn't come to us by being good people or by doing good things. Grace is an unconditional gift, and while it is totally free to us, it was not free for God, for it cost him dearly. His son Jesus purchased it for us by his blood shed on a cross. Now, some have said if you want to think about it a little deeper and you like mnemonics, you can use the words G-R-A-C-E, G standing for, for God, or God's R for riches, uh, A at for at, and C for Christ, and E for expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace does for us. Now, knowing that we are saved by grace, just like knowing that we have been chosen, should also give us assurance of our salvation and make us more grateful for it, and also then make us want to be more obedient. When Paul was teaching through this doctrine of grace in the book of Romans, he noted that one of the main objections to it, and I've actually seen this sometimes, Uh, sharing my faith with Jewish people, 
was that it might make some people feel like, well, okay, then I can just sin all the more. This doesn't make any sense, this whole salvation of grace. If I'm covered by grace, why should I obey? But Paul then goes on to explain that such a belief would not be the result of true grace. And I love the way Spurgeon explained this about grace. He said this, Grace is always, always, always a nursemaid of holiness and never an apologist for sin. Grace is always a nursemaid of holiness and never an apologist of sin. It's a good way to think about what true grace is. Now, the other thing that grace does for us is that it takes away any sense of pride or accomplishment that we could have about our own salvation. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that grace is a gift, not the result of our own works, so that none of us would boast. Now, mercy, the next concept in verse 3 here of 2 John, is very closely related to grace. It's sort of like the flip side of the same coin. While grace might be described as us getting that which we don't deserve, which is salvation and eternal life, mercy is essentially us not getting what we do deserve, which is judgment and eternal damnation. So think about what knowing that truth should do for us. We, well, if we who deserve judgment from a holy God who has every right to judge us for how we have offended him with our sin, if we do not get that judgment, how then should we, who do not in any way approach God's holiness, treat others who may offend us? Well, the answer is pretty straightforward. It should cause us to not judge them and to instead show them forgiveness. In fact, that's the point of the parable at the end of Matthew 18 about the one servant who had been given, forgiven so much by the king but who then stubbornly refused to forgive his fellow servant of so little. And then next in verse 3, we have this little word, peace, and what a truly, truly precious word that is. And it always flows from grace. The Bible speaks of three different kinds of peace, all of which are ours as believers because of what Jesus has done for us. And the first and most important kind of peace, which is literally the foundation of the other types of peace that we'll cover briefly, is peace with God, which means that the long war between us and God is over. We are no longer at odds with him. We are no longer objects of his wrath because his holy wrath at our sin has been satisfied in Christ. That's what that big theological word that John used twice in 1 John, propitiation. That's what it means, that the holy wrath of God has been satisfied. Now, this type of peace is what's referred to in Romans 5.1 which says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that kind of peace, though, that peace with God, then leads to another type of peace, which is the peace of God, or in other words, the ability to have peace in all circumstances. And that's the type of peace that's spoken of in Philippians 4, 7, where it says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this is a peace that's not dependent on circumstances, but is actually uh, rather something that rises above circumstances because it's based on being in a right relationship with God, not on what's going on around us. And then that kind of peace leads to a third type of peace, which is peace with others. And that kind of peace is what is being spoken of in Romans 12, 18, where it says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably 
with all. So isn't that amazing that as Christians, all three types of this peace are available to us in Jesus. But here is what is so sad. The world, everybody around us that doesn't know Jesus, desperately seeks the second kind of peace, that peace of God, that contentment, and the third type of peace, the ability to get along with others. Think of all the time, the effort, the attention that people spend seeking those, and yet they only come from first receiving that first kind of peace, that is peace with God that's only available through Jesus Christ. So you and I have been blessed, haven't we? that we get all three of those types of peace. Now, based on these foundational truths that John lays out here of being chosen, being given grace, mercy, and peace, what does he tell us about next as he writes with his heart and his mind and literally his pen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? So let's look in verses 4 and 6 and see that. He says next, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So, we see there in the beginning of verse 4 that John is joyful about something. And as verse 4 goes on, we see what that is about, that it is that some of the people in this church are walking in the truth. Now, from what Daniel has taught us in 1 John, we know that the primary error or falsehood that was affecting the church at that time was this Gnostic belief that Jesus had not really come from heaven to earth in the flesh. And we also see John mention that again in verse 7, if we go on one more verse, where he talks about the deceivers, who it says there, do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So here in verse 4, John is rejoicing that some people in that church have held on to the truth about Jesus. And it was right for John to rejoice because false doctrine about something as essential as who Jesus is is deadly uh, in a church. In fact, John was not only right to rejoice about it, but it was actually the loving thing for him to do. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, which gives us that beautiful description of love, says that love rejoices with the truth. And so that's what we see John doing here. And so if we look at John as the spiritual father of the people in that church, his rejoicing also makes a lot of sense, for he is reacting much as our earthly fathers would have responded when they saw us first walk or first be able to talk. It's, It's a sign of growth, a sign of development and maturity. But while John was rejoicing about that, We see here that he was still deeply concerned about something else. And we see in verse 5 what that was. For he asks in that verse that the people in this church would love one another. Because you see, and we've probably all seen this or been caught up in it ourselves, that a healthy and good concern in a church about right doctrine and the truth can easily lead people into being unloving. And God calls us in Ephesians 4.15 to speak the truth in love to one another. And so while truth is to be spoken and proclaimed, the method, manner, and motive of us doing it is always to be loving. And sadly, where the truth is held in high regard in a church, as it should be, so please don't get me wrong, love often ends up taking a back seat. And yet God calls us to both. 
It has been said that love without truth is hypocrisy, because if you really love someone, then you would want them to know the truth. But it's also been said that truth without love is brutality, and that's what we need to be careful of, because oftentimes a church that is full of doctrine junkies and doctrine detectives can be one of the most unloving places on the face of the earth. Many of us here have been part of churches like that or have friends that go to churches like that, and so you can very definitely relate to this problem. And when this happens, then a church is actually living in disobedience. That's what John's talking about here, because along with calling this church to be loving in verse 5, he then calls them to obey God's commandments. And that does sound kind of strange, doesn't it? Because you would think that if they've got the truth right, that then they would be a very obedient church. But as stated earlier, right doctrine does not guarantee right behavior. There has to be something more, and that something more is love. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the love part is not really something more. Rather, it is the foundation of all true obedience to God's commands. Because note that while John calls this church in the beginning of verse 6 to walk according to God's commandments, plural and S, he then says in the middle of verse 6 that this is the commandment, no S, singular, referring back to verse 5, the commandment to love one another. So what is it about this one commandment, to love in particular, that makes it so foundational to obeying all of God's commandments in general? Because calling them to obey just this one commandment sounds a little incomplete, doesn't it? You know, if you were really calling a church to greater obedience, wouldn't you talk about things like obeying God in in their marriages, in their relationships, or getting rid of sinful habits or lifestyles? I mean, those are the kind of things that churches always hold seminars on, right? Why isn't John focused on things like that? Well, you see that one commandment, to love one another, pretty much covers everything else. And if a church can get that right, then obedience and everything else will just flow naturally out of it. And here's how. Remember how in Matthew 20, 22, 34 to 40, the scribe, a.k.a. an attorney, I hate to have to admit that, asked Jesus, asked Jesus trying to trick him, which is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus responded by telling him the commandment to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and about the one to love your neighbor as yourself. But then he went on to say this in verse 40. Look at this verse. On these two commandments, love of God, love of others, depend all the law and the prophets. So what did Jesus mean by that? Well, the law would be a reference to the Mosaic law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And the prophets would be what God had commanded through all the prophets in the Old Testament. So basically, Jesus is saying here that everything God told us to do or not to do in the Old Testament depends on those two commandments regarding love. Well, how does that work? Well, you see, true love is not contentless. It is not just a mushy, gushy emotion or feeling. True love ushers itself out in things that we do or don't do for the object of our love. So then think of how this works then with the Ten Commandments. Because we are called to love God, for instance, that means that we don't take his name in vain. Because we are called to love God, that means that we don't put other gods before him 
or worship idols. And because we're called to love our fellow man, that means that we don't lie to him, we don't steal from him, we don't take his wife, we don't murder him. So do you see how all the do's and don'ts of the Old Testament are just the practical outflow of what it looks like to love God and to love others? So at the end of the day, all of God's law, just as Jesus said, can be summed up in this, just love. That's why I made this the title of the message. Love, 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 like Pastor Tommy says. And maybe that's what churches should actually have more seminars on. Now, love is so all-inclusive of everything else that God wants us to do that here's a good rule of thumb for how to know what to do when there's no clear command one way or the other on some decision you're facing in life as a Christian. Just do what is most loving of God and most loving of others, and you'll end up doing the right thing because all of God's commandments depend on those two commands, to love him and love others. Now, when it comes to loving others, Jesus actually took this to a new level. Remember he said back in John 13, 34, after he had washed the disciples' feet, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now, the newness he spoke of there was not a newness in terms of, of, of time or chronological. It was a newness in terms of depth or content or extent because the original commandment in the Ten Commandments was to love others as yourself. But here Jesus goes way, way beyond that. For he says now we're to love others as he has loved us, which is sacrificially, unconditionally, selflessly, and not dependent on there being anything good in the person we're seeking to love. Remember what the Bible teaches in Romans 5.8, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus still loved us. So in other words, Jesus loves us, even though we don't deserve it. And that is how we are to love others. Now, that sounds impossible, right? To, to love others even though they don't deserve it. And the truth is, it is impossible unless we first have received this amazing kind of love that Jesus has for us because we can't give that which we don't have. That's why I love that line in that song. Teach me to love others as you have loved me. See, if you're, if you're struggling with loving someone that you don't feel like loving, or who may actually be an unlovable person, there's people like that, I'm sure we've all been one or met them at times, spend some time contemplating God's love for you as an otherwise completely unlovable sinner. Read what the Bible has to say about that. Pray that God would help you grasp a hold of that and ask that the Holy Spirit would fill you with his fruit of love. And then, with that love, go out and give it to others around you. Now, there's one more thing to see here about the tie-in between love and obedience. Uh, John, John says this in verse 6 of our text. He says, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. That's the definition of love he gives us here. And it's very similar to what Jesus said in John 14, 15. He said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then actually two more times on that same night when he's walking with his disciples from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, two more times he basically says the same thing. John 14, 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And John 14, 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. You know, as a younger Christian, when I would read those verses, I thought they were telling me that it was 
somehow through my obedience that I could show Jesus my love for him. And I found myself working really, really hard to obey him, and it often didn't work out so well. Often made me miserable trying. But as I've wrestled with that over the years and hopefully grown from it, I've come to discover something deeper that these verses are saying. And it is this, that if I just would focus instead on loving Jesus, then I will end up obeying him. You see, there really needs to come a point in our Christian life, I believe this with all my heart, where we learn to see the thou shalt nots of the Bible as the I don't want to's. And we learn to see the thou shalt's of the Bible as I want to. Because when we reach that point, now we begin to sense what this love should be doing for us. But as long as we see God's commands, it's just moral imperatives that we somehow have to live up to, then we're only going to have a religious kind of obedience, not a Holy Spirit-filled joyful obedience that's from the heart, and that's actually what God wants. But if we see God's commands as instead reflecting the love of Jesus and as things that he wants us to obey because he loves us, then it becomes a whole lot easier to obey, and you will start seeing more obedience in your life. To paraphrase A.W. Tozer, I love this, he said, the commandments can only command righteousness, but love for Jesus will actually produce righteousness. Think about that. All a commandment can do is tell you what to do, but the love of Jesus can actually enable you to now do it. So that's the final tie-in between love and obedience that I have to share with you. We're not quite done. There's a little bit more in 2 John. So let's read from verse 7 to the end, and we'll try to go through this pretty quickly. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Well, verses 7 through 11 are referring to those who are teaching this heresy that Jesus did not really come to earth as the God-man. And Daniel's done an excellent job of, of teaching us about what is so deadly wrong about that. Because if you have the wrong Jesus, you know, we want to have the real Jesus, but if you have the wrong Jesus, then guess what? There's no salvation because only the real Jesus can save us. So we're not going to go into all of that again, but there are two little things here in what we just read that I want us to notice. The first is how John refers to this false teaching as a deception. And the second is how he tells this church to respond to it. Now, twice in verse 7, John refers to those who teach this false doctrine about Jesus as deceivers. And so that tells us that this false teaching is actually satanically inspired because Satan is the father of lies, and he is the great deceiver, and deception is his game. That's his wheelhouse. And rather than attack faith in Jesus directly, it's much easier for him to get, to put, get people to put their faith in the wrong Jesus. 
In fact, if we look at the history of the church from its beginning 2,000 years ago up until now, we can see that Satan, and we can't totally figure him out, but we can see that he basically has two primary means of attacking the church, and those are deception or persecution. And sure, his attacks can take on many forms, and he's always spinning out new versions of them, but they all, in one way or another, flow out of those two, deception and persecution. And in a sense, although we in this country get all worried about persecution coming our way, deception has proven to be his far, far greater and more effective weapon. Because throughout history, persecution has usually backfired on him because it ends up purifying the church and making the church stronger, with the result being that faith then spreads like wildfire. Look at the early church. When Rome persecuted the early church, Christianity grew tremendously because as people saw the faith of Jesus in these saints who were lovingly going to their deaths and refusing to renounce their Savior, people began to think, wow, there must be something tremendously real about all this and something transforming, something supernatural about Christianity, and they wanted it. And more and more of them came to believe in Christ. The same thing happened in mainland China as it opened up a bit after the communist persecution that started in the 40s. Faith had spread like wildfire under a totalitarian regime. So while we are called to always be loving, we still, at the same time, need to be discerning because that is how we stand against deception, is by being discerning. And that's what John is calling this church to do in response to the deception about the nature of Jesus. And he goes even so far in verses 10 and 11 to say that in their discernment, they should not even welcome these deceivers into their homes because to do so would be participating in their work of deception, sort of like aiding and abetting the enemy. So first, true believers need to be discerning and learn to recognize that which is false and call it out. And second, they need to be protective of the church and keep false doctrines out. When Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of chapter 7 to not judge, he went right on after that to tell us not to give to dogs what is holy and not to throw our pearls before swine. Well, that implies that we're still to be discerning and recognize who the dogs are and who the swine are and take caution to keep away from them. So while we as a loving people need to not be judgmental, we're still to use our judgment. That's what John's calling them to do here. And what a lot of us do sometimes is out of a healthy fear of being judgmental, we throw all judgment to the wind, and we end up tolerating all kinds of falsehoods in the truth. But I love how Greg Laurie puts this. He says, God did not call us to check our brains in at the door when you walk into a church, just like you would check your hat or your coat in at the door in a fancy restaurant. In fact, we're supposed to worship God with all of our hearts and minds, strength and soul. So as we grow in our faith, we're to keep our brains fully engaged and test everything against the only reliable standard of truth we have, which is in the Word of God. Finally, John ends this book in verses 12 to 13 by saying that he has a lot more to say, but that he would rather do it in person than by writing a letter. And presumably, it's a lot more to say about how they're dealing with this deception. And I don't want us to miss that because it's some very, very important advice about how to be loving when you're calling out a falsehood. It is always, always, always better to do it face-to-face -face than remotely 
by a letter or today by emails or text messages. Remember, Jesus also said in Matthew 18 that when we're dealing with a sinning brother, that we are to go to him, which again means to be face-to-face. In fact, after years in church leadership, I wish we could have a universal rule in all of our churches that says emails are not allowed when you're dealing with a doctrinal issue or a sin issue. You know, that kind of international no no sign, the red sign with the arrow through it, the little email uh, in it with the, the arrow going right over the email. No emails when you're dealing with these kinds of things because that would save us from doing a lot of damage to each other. But you see, there's actually something about seeing someone's face when you're talking to them about issues like this and you can see how they react and you can see maybe the hurt and the pain uh, that you're causing them and that sort of serves like a natural break or a natural moderator on on how hard you put how hard you push and what you say and it keeps us more loving in both our words and our approach so that's it for second john if we were to sum up the point of the message again it would be in honor of pastor tommy to be what the title of the sermon is just love now in closing i want to note this this letter was addressed to a church like us but there were clearly people in that church who still had not accepted or put their faith in the truth of who jesus is and of what you need to do with him because remember john said back in verse four that he rejoiced to find what? Some of the people in that church walking in the truth. And that word some implies that there were people there in that church who were not walking in the truth about who Jesus is and what they needed to do with him. And what was true of that church back then is no doubt true of churches today, including us here this morning and those who may be watching online. And so, frankly, we hope and pray every weekend before service that there will be people here people listening online who don't yet believe the truth about jesus but we don't want them to leave the same way they came or the same way they tuned in this morning to this broadcast and so if anyone here or online is in that group that that same group that was in the church two thousand years ago we are glad we're happy we're rejoicing that you were here and we welcome you and we love you in the name of jesus But more importantly, Jesus loves you. And he wants you to know and then receive the truth about himself, the real Jesus. So here it is. Here's the truth about the real Jesus. God loves you. God made you in his image. God made you to be in a relationship with him. But you, me, everyone else here in this room, everyone listening online, anyone on the face of this earth, are what the Bible calls sinners. That means that we fall short of God's holy standard for who he created us to be. And that creates a real problem for us because God is holy. He's absolutely perfect. There's no sin in him, and he can't have a relationship with anyone who sins because to do that would compromise his holiness, and he would have to judge that sin and punish it. And the Bible says that the punishment for sin is death, not just a physical death, but a spiritual one, which means separation from God and his love forever. But thankfully, as we've talked about this morning, God has provided a way for him to remain holy, for his justice to still be satisfied, and for us as wretched sinners to be saved from this dilemma and to be with him forever. And it is by allowing his son Jesus, who is perfect God in human flesh, as John's been talking about, 
who came to this earth 2,000 years ago and lived a perfect life, not tainted by any sin, so that he could be a substitute for us. It's by allowing him to then take on our sin for, upon himself and trust that he died in our place on a cross to atone for our sin, to propitiate that holy wrath of God. The Bible says that the same Jesus died and that he was buried, and then three days later, he rose from the dead to new life. And he now sits at the right hand of heaven, right hand of the Father in heaven. And God has decreed in his grace that whoever believes in, which means to put your faith, your trust, and your confidence in Jesus to save you from your sins, meaning that because God put your sins on Jesus and judged him for it, you will not be judged for it. And you can live forever in a relationship with this incredibly good and loving God so that when you die, you would then go straight into his presence in the glory and perfection and perfect bliss of heaven. So let's all bow our heads in prayer to this amazing, holy and loving God. And as we're praying, I'm going to ask if there's anyone here or anyone listening online who would like to accept this Jesus, the true one, the real one that we just talked about, that you would just simply slip up your hand. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to rejoice with you. Daniel and I will be up front afterwards if, you, if you're here and if you're online. Just talk to us next weekend or when we see you. But not only will we rejoice, but the Bible says that any time one sinner turns to Jesus, the angels in heaven rejoice. So if there's anyone down here who sees himself as a sinner and wants to cause a heavenly reaction in heaven this morning, just slip up your hand. Receive Jesus now. Life is too short, as we've all learned from COVID. All it takes is one fast-spreading, dangerous, contagious disease, and we could all be gone. So don't wait. So Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take these words of truth from the book of 2 John. Lord, pin them to our hearts, Lord. Um, expose any unbelief or unfaith in anyone hearing this message this morning that they might turn to you and come to the true Jesus and receive that incredible gift by grace of salvation. For all the rest of us here that have already received that gift, Lord, let us be thankful. Let us start this new year, as we've talked about, reminding ourselves every morning, first thing, that, wow, I'm a Christian. God, you've saved me. I'm elect. I'm chosen by you. Lord, I have grace. I've got mercy. I've got peace with you. I've got peace in my circumstances, and I can be at peace with others. Lord, help me to walk in the truth. Help us to be a church that is known for love, first and foremost, Lord, and out of that love, may we love you back, may we love others, and may we love obeying you, Lord. May we see all your commandments that are not to do things as things we don't want to do because we love you, all your commandments to do things as things we truly want to do because we love you. You're so amazing. Thank you for the power of your love. We praise you and ask all these things in Jesus' name.